0: As an American, I love living in Plymouth. This city is rich in history and culture. It has spectacular scenery and amazing architecture. In my time here, I have discovered plenty of hidden histories tucked away, each of them with fascinating stories to tell. I'm Bobby Inman. Come with me as we explore Beyond the Mayflower Steps. This episode, and the ones that follow, are not designed around a walk or a path. Instead, these will explore Plymouth as a whole, as its story reaches much farther than the Barbican. I will always begin each episode at the Mayflower Steps Monument. There are a few things that I'll be highlighting that are within walking distance, and I'll make sure to give clear directions so you can enjoy seeing them, and I'll also hope by visiting them, It may help you get your bearings for your own explorations. As I talk about locations further afield, I'll be sure to indicate the general direction and area where these places are. Every site I talk about can be easily accessed by various means, including car, public transport, or even cycling. Everywhere that is, except for one place, and I'll get to that one shortly. But after all of that, on to episode three. This city has definitely had its fair share of influential and important citizens throughout its history, and I feel an argument can be made for many of them as being the most famous. But for me, I feel that the person associated with Plymouth, who has made the greatest impact globally, is Sir Francis Drake. His legacy can be seen all around this area, from street names and pubs, to monuments and shopping malls. And I feel few individuals have had more wide-reaching impact over such a long period of time. If we face the Mayflower Steps, the street on our right is known simply as the Barbican. And if we follow the near sidewalk as it continues up the hill and around the corner, we will find ourselves in an area called Plymouth Hoe, which looks out over Plymouth Sound. This is also one of my favorite of the city's many great vistas. As we continue along the sidewalk, looking out over the water, you might notice, among many points of interest in the sound, the island towards the right. You remember that one place that was not easily accessible? This is Drake's Island. The first recorded name was St. Michael's Island, named for the chapel built there in 1185, and was known by either that name or St. Nicholas Island until relatively recently, which in this country means the last hundred and fifty years or so. Although it can sporadically be seen referenced as Drake's Island from the late 16th century, it wasn't until the late 1800s that the name became affixed. Francis Drake was the first Englishman and second man overall to circumnavigate the globe, and that journey began and ended on Drake's Island. He was made governor of the island in 1583, as by then it contained a military base housing over 300 men. It has served as a barracks, a prison, and during both World Wars, it was a major gun battery for defense of Plymouth. While we can't visit it, last I heard, it was up for sale. So if you have a cool six million pounds laying around, I hope you invite me over. Be sure to stick around for the end of the episode, where we've got a great local band named Drake's Island and their latest single, The Hollow. I fully encourage a walk around the hoe, as it is a place of great beauty and history. It has amazing views, good food, hot coffee on cold days, and always an ice cream van or three if it's a hot one. But for us, up the grassy hill beyond the red and white lighthouse, known as Smeaton's Tower, is a collection of monuments, including a magnificent 10-foot-tall statue of Sir Francis Drake, Unveiled by a Drake descendant in 1884, you can find on its base a plaque presented to Plymouth in 1979 by the Sir Francis Drake Commission of California to mark 400 years since his coming ashore there, believed to be near modern-day San Francisco and claiming it for England. This statue is actually a replica, although they were both cast in the same year. The original can be found in the nearby village of Tavistock, which is where Francis Drake was born. Standing high up on the hoe, with our backs to the sound, we are facing the heart of Plymouth, the city center. A city center is where we will find the bulk of shops, services, restaurants, and just about anything else in pretty much every city in the UK. In Plymouth, as with many places, this is also where you'll find the local mall with the name Drake Circus. Originally, this was the site of a large roundabout that shared that same title, and I feel it speaks volumes that we continue to celebrate him today. On the other side of Drake Circus, the main arteries that lead out of the heart of the city start branching off, and the road leading up and to the right is North Hill, where a picturesque park known as Drake's Place can be found about halfway up on the left. The reservoir seen today was built between 1825 and 1828 and was the main source of water to the city for almost a 100 years. Since 2007, it has been leased by the University of Plymouth, and I have watched it undergo a stunning transformation to become the beauty spot it is now. Drake's Place sits on the site of a 16th-century canal which brought water from Dartmoor, an area to the north of the city, directly into Plymouth, to become one of the first municipal water supplies in the country. Francis Drake oversaw the construction of the 17 and a half mile long waterway and it became known as Drake's Leet. There is a legend that when the water was first released, Drake himself rode a white horse in front of the flow all the way to the city. When it reached Plymouth, the water was supplied through conduit houses throughout the town and the remains of two of these are preserved in the walls of Drake's Place Reservoir. Although today, much of the Leet is gone, especially the closer you are to the city center, there are a few places you can spot it and follow its meandering course, which was chosen on purpose to slow the water in order to minimize erosion of the banks. The best way to see the remnants of the Leet, in my opinion, is by bicycle. There are plenty of cycle hire places around, and there are some fantastic bike paths in and around the city that range from flat for miles you better wear your helmet and i think it's a great way to explore the area drake's trail is a 21 mile cycle trail that leads from his statue on the hoe to its twin in tavistock and travels beside the lead in several places including near the village of yelverton which if you aren't a cyclist is easily accessible by car and local buses drake's Leet, among lots of other history is just a short walk away Not far from Yelverton, you will find Buckland Abbey, which dates back more than 700 years. Serving as an abbey from 1278 until it became a residence in the 1540s, it was the home of Sir Francis Drake for the last 15 years of his life, including his time as mayor of Plymouth, and where his collateral descendants called home until 1946. Today, it is in the hands of the National Trust, This is an extraordinary organization, which looks after historic properties spread all over England, tending to the stately homes and gardens and restoring them with an ethos of preservation and care. Buckland Abbey displays an impressive collection of artifacts, many belonging to Drake himself, including the nicest collection of 16th century Native American arrowheads from California, you are likely to find anywhere in this country. One room, in this immense manner, houses a Rembrandt self-portrait. And I have to say, I don't care how many times I see it, I find it awe-inspiring. The kitchen, the chapel, the gardens, the entire estate is rich in elegance and antiquity, and when you walk around, you can't help but feel that sense of being swept back into a truly historic era.
1: You are listening
0: to Beyond the Mayflower Steps. Beyond the Mayflower Steps. Beyond the Mayflower Steps. Beyond the Mayflower Steps, the The podcast. I had a chance to sit down with Cynthia Gaskell-Brown, who's a former curator of the local museum. And we got to talking about Drake's legacy and what it means today. Hello, Cynthia, it's great to be talking with you today. Good morning. How, how are things with you today? You all right?
1: I have just come in from Cornwall.
0: Ah, oh, beautiful Cornwall. <laughs> to Plymouth, I'm, yes. I'm headed there this weekend. I'm really looking <laughs> good, forward good, to good. it. Good, good, good. So now, how, what is your association with uh, Buckland Abbey and with Drake?
1: Well, it was quite an interesting one because I had been working in Plymouth City Museum as the city archaeologist for many years. And then I was given the privilege of uh, re-displaying Buckland Abbey in time for the Armada 1988 celebrations, which was the four, 400th anniversary uh, of Drake helping to defeat the Spanish Armada. So that was a big event for Buckland Abbey. And the Abbey was, I helped empty it. I, I did a lot of archaeology, I me- measured the building and got teams of people to help me. And we set up uh, some new displays there which told the whole story of the Abbey plus Francis Drake, not just Francis Drake on his own. So that was how I came to work at Buckland Abbey. It has changed a lot since then. It is now completely run by the National Trust who put out their own displays from the time to time and they changed them as all tourist attractions do. So I enjoyed it very much. It was a great privilege, very interesting, and threw all sorts of ideas into the air.
0: Well, it's, it's an amazing house and I mean, I can't imagine how fascinating both being the archaeologist of the city and being able to empty out Buckland Abbey and, and to redecorate it. I, I can't, that must have just been beyond my, my fascination levels, I think. So So now what do you consider uh, Sir Francis Drake's greatest contribution? He's, he's done so much for not only the local area, but the larger area wide. What, what do you consider his, his greatest legacy, his greatest contribution?
1: That's a very difficult and uh...
0: I know It's a possibly like, loaded question. It's a Sophie's Choice <laughs> question, is
1: <isn't> it? <laughs> I think it's, he's a fascinating character because he, I don't know how far you've gone into Tudor history and the Elizabethan period, but he is living and conquering the world almost in some people's eyes, just at the time when major upheavals are happening in, in Britain, particularly in England. We're moving from a Catholic country to an Anglican, to a Protestant country. Drake's family were Protestants right from the uh, early years. (coughs) His father was a a preacher and had to flee to Kent because he was being persecuted by local Catholics at that time. So we're in this cusp of major change in British history. And Drake was there and and somehow found his niche in this this strange time, time of change, really, I suppose. He went adventuring, as you know. He went off trying to trade with the Spanish in the Caribbean in his early life as a sailor with John Hawkins. Uh, that in itself, just sailing across the Atlantic to the Americas, then was quite a... Uh, well, I'm not quite sure how to describe it. It was dangerous, difficult. Nobody had charts. You never knew whether you were going to meet other pirates because I think trade was a pirate, <laughs> no doubt about it. He liked to... Uh, Get profit out of his voyages.
0: I th- certainly think the intrepid explorer certainly applies. Yes, uh, I, uh, but
1: he wanted the he wanted the treasure. Yeah, of course <laughs> he, he wanted did, the absolutely. treasure, definitely. <laughs> and that happened very early on. He started to become quite wealthy as a young man when he went for, for across the Atlantic with his relative John Hawkins. Do you think that stayed his motivation with
0: with the the treasure? To me, to me, just in in the research I've done, it seemed later that it was it was the recognition. It was that he oh, wanted think, to be yes. leaving a mark. Yes, uh, I, th-
1: I think initially, when they first went to the Caribbean, the Spaniards had already sort of colonized and were trading extensively, uh, and England just wanted to get involved and and in, you know, enjoy trading relationships. That failed. Uh, and then this tension between England and Spain, built and built and built. But when Drake had managed to get round the world uh, and come back, a very rich man indeed, he took, by the way, he took his treasure not into Plymouth, into Southern Harbour, when he came back from going round the world. There was this tatty old boat by that time. It had been at sea for three years, loaded down with Spanish treasure, and Peruvian jewels, all sorts of things. He actually took it up the River Tamar to Tremerton Castle, where it was offloaded pretty discreetly, uh, guarded by 40 men in Tremerton Castle. And he was still go and see the room where it was, and it's a, a, a castle that goes back to Norman times, but it's in Cornwall, it's not in Plymouth. <laughs> um, and that's, that's a fascinating thought, because he then, of course, had to report to Queen Elizabeth I, so he rode up to London with a casket full of the choicest jewels, sat with her for six hours, telling him, telling her about three years of adventuring going right round the world. Uh, and in the meantime, she sent her officials from the Tower of London down to Saltash to go to Tremerton to make a full list of all this treasure. So it wasn't just casually popping it in sailors' pockets to get rich. They were given money. They were given, well, Drake was given 10,000 pounds worth, which was millions, in no millions oh, of In those days, oh,
0: absolutely. Worth. So his greatest legacy, what do you, what do you reckon, left today, what, 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 do, oh. we, what do we think?
1: I don't think it's physical. I think Drake's legacy is to do with how people regard him. In Plymouth, he is very much the hero, definitely the hero. In Spain, he is not. He is a pirate. Um,
0: And in America, he walks the line of
1: both. uh, Do you think Uh, so? Yes, ma'am. Well, because on his voyage around the world, he went very far north up the Pacific Mm -hmm. coast into California. Possibly even further north than the California. And even uh, tourist, New Albion, yeah. Two, two bo- tourists would really like to know because there's a big controversy about far, how far north you yes. go. Um So in that sense, yes. But he wasn't trying to colonize. Know, no, no, but it,
0: he was. It he just. It was seen. America views him as as kind of kind of like I said. He, he walks that line between both. He the explorer and the uh, the circumnavigation, and you know he he must have been one of the most famous men in the world uh, for quite some time, uh, along with Magellan and and yeah, other people. Yeah, and yeah. Um, and so yeah. He, but but at the same time, the piracy. It doesn't tarnish his legacy, but I just think it. it, it well, he lived. That he lived
1: of. in a rough and ready age. Of course, he did. Everybody it, it, was doing it. it was, you could barely sail down the English Channel without meeting a pirate. Who could have been out of coming out of Cornwall uh, yeah, in the, the 17th century? So. And yeah, the
0: story of the highwaymen are, are uh, legendary. Well, yes, <laughs> so, certainly at
1: sea, it was dangerous.
0: Do, do you have a favourite room at Buckland I Abbey? Mean, Not ever, as
1: such, because I, I think the building, in a strange way, encapsulates this this change through from you know the tipping point in English history between being a Catholic country full of monasteries. It must have the Dissolution of the monasteries by Henry VIII must have been, you know, it was a terrible shock. You know, everybody locally would have been employed or connected to a monastery.
0: It must have changed the landscape physically, Absolutely. socially, in And many then ways.
1: when Drake came back from his voyage around the world, and wealthy, beyond everybody's dreams, that in itself would have made an impact, because not only did he buy Buckland Abbey, he got three other manors in the Devon area, he also bought loads of property in Plymouth. I mean, you invest in property, he comes back with bullion and gold and jewels, which isn't ready cash, is it? Put it into property. I don't know how many houses he bought down here in Plymouth, was it 17 in New Street, something like this?
0: Something like that, yes ma'am. And he
1: partially lived in Plymouth. He didn't live at Buckland very much. He was always either away, he was in Parliament or in Plymouth quite wisely. Yeah, his
0: ancestors lived there a lot more than he did. He did. So <laughs>
1: and after he died, it was the women of the house, the descendants who actually kept the whole estate running, which is another side to the story. <laughs> Going back to your question about which parts well, of the I just the thought Abbey-
0: you must have such a unique scene them empty. I, I, I can't even imagine oh, okay. that. So. Well, you
1: could see uh, the underlying, the bones, the skeleton of the building, yes. as of which had been a church. It had been converted from a church of into course, a house. Yeah. Um, Oddly enough, it's not the main building I enjoy most, but if you go out and have a coffee in the restaurant, you actually are in a building which started as the stables for the monastery, uh, and then was uh, converted by Richard Grenville, who bought the monastery. After the uh, dissolution of the monastery, he, he, uh, another famous West Country family, Sir Richard Grenville, bought the abbey, and it stood sort of semi-derelict for years. But he put a bailiff into what had been the sta- stables and they altered the building, turned it into a house. So, this, what was the stable block, is full of the most ancient structures the roof, timbers, the whole walls are full of blocked up openings. The Grenville coat of arms are there. And I think when Drake took over a few years later with his wealth, he had inherited something that's already been altered but it would have been a building site still. It would have been incredible. And you can still see the skeletons of all this, uh, even in the main building, the little bits of the church carvings are there, which tends to be obscured by all the modern display the stands and things like that. So go and look at the walls around the inside and the outside. And see that's
0: and that's why we're interviewing you that's it, for, for little so. wonderful nuggets like that. So yeah. do you, do you, do you have a favorite artifact you, of all the things you've looked after and, and cared for? Uh, you have a, well,
1: I've got to say Drake's drum.
0: It's it's amazing, isn't
1: it? Because it's a strange object, and uh, you can feel. Well, it's got all sorts of uh, mythology attached yes. to it now. It was when it was made quite a commonplace thing, because one of the pieces of research I did, nobody until I looked at it properly, as an archaeologist, I went along along and looked at this drum, and I thought, well, there must be other drums like it. You know, archaeologists will take a plastic bottle and say, how do I date that bottle? I'll find another one when it's got a date on it. So I started doing the drum as an archaeological artefact, and I thought, Structurally, it's fascinating. It's made of walnut. It was made out of a single sheet of wool, which is about 11 feet long when you unroll it. But when I really looked at it, a lot of other people had obviously looked at the drum. Nobody had ever noticed that right on the back of the plain side, away from the coat of arms, there were some little scratch marks. And three upright scratch marks and an X across it. Now, that almost certainly is a number 13, Roman number 13. And when I looked up the records of late Drake's last voyage, there's a long list of all the equipment they bought to go on the last voyage in which he died. Um, and they bought 13 side drums. This is a side drum. It was very normal to have drums on board because you had soldiers and the drums, you had individual drums assigned to each group of soldiers when they went ashore. And they the, the drummer was an important person, so they led the troop of soldiers. Uh, but while they were not sure when they are on board, they, the drums would go into boxes. It's a very wet ship, very salty, and they'd all have a, you know, a catalogue number on them. Yeah, it's OK, it's, this is 13, that belongs to your troop. So I p- pinned this one down, and I found that absolutely extraordinary because it's been looked at for half a century, three quarters of a century, and nobody had ever seen it. Nobody so, realised
0: it was part of a set.
1: No, well, other sets of God. If you if you investigate the history of side drums, you can go back to Switzerland where they had groups of drums which were all made in the ancient times, really in the thirteen hundreds, fourteen hundreds, and they're all belonging. You know, they're all labelled, not in this country. And I didn't find another drum that had survived in England from that period, for sure, anywhere. So, unfortunately, it isn't at Buckland Abbey. It's, it will be in Plymouth Museum.
0: Maybe at the box. In the box well I, I the my first time I ever saw it was at Buckland Abbey in the relic room yeah. and uh, and I just it, the, the power that it
1: emanated almost yeah. was uh, but that was goes very back good. to i mean this sort of I- cheating treating it as an icon. because when we first displayed it there in in nineteen eighty seven we put it in a very careful display so that it had a mirror underneath it, so you could see the underside of the drumhead underside uh, and the mirror behind it, so you could see right round it. And people would walk right past it, and they come into the gallery, they wouldn't see it. And they'd come downstairs, where's the drum? So we were forced, and this is where museums get into this business of bias, isn't it? We were forced to put it on a velvet cloth and put some different sorts of lighting, so it looked almost like an altarpiece, a, a real icon, which I found rather strange and I didn't want to do, but it worked. And it isn't there anymore, as I say, it gets moved around.
0: It gets moved around. Are there any, uh, any little hidden mysteries, any, any, any nooks and crannies in, in Buckland that, uh, that not everybody gets to uh, see? And well know about? I, 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 I like the, the looking at the walls. that's. A, that's well a you've good... got
1: to outside the building, especially in, go out and walk around the restaurant when you're there next time, and just look at all the blocked up openings, because they've got granite uh, edgings, as it were. Uh, and you can see how the building has been altered through time. And then if you look at the back of it, you'll see there's in, outside, around the edges of the windows, there are little coats of arms which are not Drake, but they're Grenville. So those are not things people mostly notice, I think. However, um, it's an extraordinary building.
0: It is. It very, is.
1: very interesting. The barn is bigger than the church. Go and ask yourself why that is. Look at those <laughs> roof timbers. How did they well how many oak trees did they take down to make that roof and it's original? It's a good old oak room.
0: I think these thoughts uh, it was one of the very first places that I ever visited when I came was it really? uh, when yes, I came yes. to Devon. My, yes. For my very first visit over here yeah. uh completely it was one of the first places that yeah. we that we went to yeah. and and I I just find it Completely fascinating. Cynthia, thank you so much for your time. It has been wonderful talking to you, and, and I, I feel like I could just sit here all day and, and learn so much from you. So thank, thank you so much for your time.
1: Thank you for talking to me, switching the brain cells on after all these years. Thank
0: you. Well, Anytime. Any this, this is wonderful. Thanks again. Talking to Cynthia turned out to be one of the most amazing interviews I have ever done. Her breadth of knowledge is so invaluable. I really hope I get to talk to her again. And so much thanks to her for agreeing in her time to talk to us today.
1: You're listening to Beyond the Mayflower Steps. Beyond the Mayflower Steps. Beyond the Mayflower Steps. The podcast.
0: Now, while we might not be able to visit Drake's Island, we can sure listen to them. So as promised, here is The Hollow by local band Drake's Island.
2: i found my way you seem to not learn from your mistakes i'm free to go home and close that door you So you look from a the- I'm free, I'll go home, I'll close that door
0: Limit is full of great local musicians. Special thanks to Fergus, Jamie, Ollie, and Matt, who individually are brilliant and are fantastic when they get together as Drake's Island. Find their page on Facebook and listen to them on Spotify or wherever you get your music. It's not often you see one person have such an impact on not just the city, but the surrounding area as well. We've only scratched the surface of places that share Drake's name or have a connection with the man. His influence is seen all around today, 400 years later. I can only imagine what it must have been like when he was alive. Be sure to check out www.mayflower400uk.org for details of the many events, projects, and exhibits. It will be happening throughout the commemorations all through the city. You've been listening to Beyond the Mayflower Steps, production and sound design by Jake Bradshaw, logo design by Jack Neal, graphic design and digital communication by Noemi Bracci, and hosted by me, Bobby Inman, for JB International Productions.